Hi, this is Graham. Episode 10 of Positive Feedback is coming your way. For this episode, it's a big, big thanks to Uplit, the organisers of the 2017 International Brisbane Writers' Festival. Please share, rate and leave a review wherever and however you're listening. Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial and all that stuff in between with your host, Graham Redfern. Hi, so this is sort of a bonus episode, and it runs a bit longer than usual. Earlier this year, I I chaired an event at the International Brisbane Writers' Festival. It was a panel discussion with three authors and academics about the Anthropocene, the idea of this new geological epoch that's being caused by humans. There were three awesome writers and thinkers on the panel. There was Claire Brown, Charles Massey and Clive Hamilton. Now, the session sold out, so not everyone who wanted to hear it actually got to hear it. Uh, but now you can. Oh, um, every once in a while, you'll hear like little split second jumps in the audio. Um, sorry about that. It's just as the audio file came to me. But I, I don't think it really gets in the way too much. You'll get the drift. So here it is, recorded as part of the 2017 Brisbane Writers' Festival, presented by Uplit. Okay, uh, welcome to the Brisbane Writers' Festival, to sunny Brisbane, um, and to this wonderful State Library. Uh, my name's Graham Redfern. Um, I'm a, a journalist. I write about climate science. I write about climate policy. I write about climate science denial. Um, I'm going to try and be your MC today. Um, Firstly, I'd, I just want to respectfully acknowledge the, the traditional owners and elders of the Aboriginal nations on which the State Library of Queensland is located and, and where we are gathered today. So the Brisbane Writers Festival has a bit of a theme this year, and it's this. Um, the big stories and the little ones in between. Now, our story today is about the Anthropocene, and I think that qualifies as one of the big stories, if not the biggest. It's the name for the very real and at times really quite precise scientific proposition that we've moved out of the geological epoch that we knew as the Holocene, and and very comfortable that was too, by the way, for the last sort of 11 and a half thousand years. And we've entered a new epoch entirely of our own making, the Anthropocene. Now, some scientists are still having discussions over the exact date, but as things stand now, um, it might well turn out that we've been in this new epoch since the 1950s. But the, the notion of the Anthropocene is a lot more than just a new classification or a new geological scale in a, in a textbook. It's, it tells us that as humans, we've already reshaped the planet and its systems, We've done nuclear bomb testing. We've had industrial agriculture. We've overexploited our resources. We've burnt billions of tons of fossil fuels that began to form hundreds of millions of years ago in a whole other epoch. And we've done all this in the blink of a geological eye. So what does all this mean for us as a civilization? How did we get here? What mistakes have we made along the way? If we can't get out of this, then can we do anything to turn the Anthropocene from what is most certainly a bad news story into a good news story? We've got an hour to sort out this little problem. (laughs) 
Um, and I reckon that's easily long enough. So actually, we're going to go 50 minutes with 10 minutes at the end for some questions. Alarmingly erudite panel to sort all this stuff out for us. We've got Claire Brown, Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley, author of Buddhist Economics, an Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. <laughs> she grew up in Tampa, Florida. That's having an interesting time this weekend. She's got a career that's been focused on confronting and then trying to change social norms. We also have Charles Massey, a Merino sheep farmer, landscape manager, academic from the Monaro Plains of New South Wales. His new book's called Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth. Charles has had 40 years on the land, and he sees a future for farming that's not like its past. And two, we have Clive Hamilton, a professor of public ethics at Charles Sturt University, a public intellectual. He's clocked up about 25 years as a fearless voice on climate change and a lot of other stuff too. His new book, the third in a trilogy, is called Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene. So, Claire, I'd like to come to you first, please. Just, just give us an idea of the difference between Buddhist economics as described in your book, and the other sort of economics, the dismal economics, which is also described on the cover of your book. Great. I wondered, would it be possible to have a little bit of light in the audience? Because yesterday we did, and it was really pleasant. As a Buddhist economist, we're all interconnected, and I like it when I <laughs> oh, can look at see that. you. It's like, oh, thank you, thank That's you. That's bad for my nerves, though. Because we don't have to care about the screen. Oh, thank you. That is infinitely better for me. It makes me feel much, much happier. And that's actually <coughs> Buddhist economics, almost in a nutshell. That error and that human nature is kind and altruistic as well as egocentric. But what makes people happy is actually reaching out, caring for each other, being part of a community. And the newest scientists now have verified this. And that's just based upon very simple Buddhist principles, but actually it could be any spiritual practice where all you have to do, you don't have to believe in a god or religion, but you really do have to care about the human spirit. And you also have to care about Mother Earth, who has sustained us through the ages. And to very quickly tell you how this differs from mainstream or free market economics, and if you want to learn more economic Mainstream economics is based upon the idea that people are totally selfish. They care about no one but themselves. People get happiness from money. More income, spending money, and more is always better. You never get satiated in the, in the mainstream model, free market model. And then it's like Earth is there to give us more goods, more consumption. That's all Earth is for. And so you end up destroying the earth. You end up people being miserable. They chase after goods. They get them. And then and about 20 minutes later, they are not feeling so happy again, and they go chasing again. So it's like once you know that people care about each other and care about the earth, you've just turned economics on its head. Because now, and once you, once you say, oh, we're not here to dominate earth, we're actually interdependent with earth, and our health depends upon 
the Earth's health. You've just turned economics on its head, so now you absolutely can transfer income, and you should, from the wealthiest people to the people in need, and you really have to protect all the critical. You don't want to fear nature. You want to enjoy nature as you heal nature. And so you really do quickly understand in Buddhist economics that you, we, we develop this very rich standard of living based upon cheap fossil fuel energy. And we have got to get off of that. And actually in the affluent countries like Australia and the United States and Europe, we need to focus less on consumption and consume, be, be, just be more natural in your lifestyle. And you will actually move to a much happier way of living. And we can do it. Lovely, Claire. Um, I want to ask you uh, later, bearing in mind what's happening in the, the, the state you grew up in, I'm going to ask you a little bit about, um, I'm going to give you a clue, they won't know, about GDP um, and how GDP, um, uh, the, the measure of GDP and how it changed around the time of Hurricane Katrina, another, another big um, uh, natural disaster. But uh, Charles, moving on, moving on to you, in, in your book, uh, Call of the Reed, Water, uh, Reed Warbler. Um, part of this book is, in, in your words to me, a, a record of a lifetime of mistakes. Now, I'm hoping not all of those mistakes were yours. Um, but in the book, you describe an, a new way of farming, regenerative agriculture. What is that? Um, a lot of the mistakes were mine, <coughs> Graham. That's how you learn in farming. Um, regenerative agriculture is... I mean, it's not new, but it's now being applied worldwide in tens of millions of hectares. And it's, it's regenerating um, the co-evolved um, self-organising systems of Earth, all the ecological systems which are interrelated, which on a macro scale is what we've destabilised. It's tipped us into... I sort of subtitled when I... It, this came out of a PhD, but uh, I subtitled it An Underground Insurgency playing on the underground with a healthy, biologically active soil. But also, I see the solution to addressing what Claire's talked about, which is um, fossil capitalism and neoliberalism, which is based on endless consumption and greed and destruction. I see um, the solution of regenerative farmers delivering healthy food and fibre and urban people uh, interacting with that and their urban agriculture and stuff as the insurgent movement and um, it's interesting when I talk about agriculture I put a hyphen in it agri and culture because it's that human element um, or so to civilization and then if you follow on from the enlightenment to um, fossil capitalism it's it's what's precipitated us precipitated us into the Anthropocene today and to finish um, and I'd, I'd like to address this later but um, our regenerative agriculture is one of the big beacons of hope in addressing the Anthropocene issue, which is about eight or nine of these long co-evolved Earth systems that sustain Earth. And very few people probably realise that it was actually life that created this self-sustaining system. So um, that's the beacon of hope in um, amidst all the denial that we've even got the Anthropocene. And... Um, and then this issue is so big for us to comprehend.
Yeah, you describe it as a, as an underground movement. So maybe later we should we should find out how we can dig it up from underground and really and sell it on an absolutely massive scale. I think, um, Clive, it, it's, this is all sounding quite hopeful quite early on in this in this conversation. There's no doubt, right, that the Anthropocene has in it a, a bunch of sort of very measurable tragedy of Clive's book that I want to quote back at him. Um, the, the line is, so today, the greatest tragedy is the absence of a sense of the tragedy. So are, are we just not taking this all seriously enough, Clive? Well, before we start, if, if we could just have the lights down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer looking into the darkness. <laughs> I'm uh, just joking, tech person. Um, well, look, it's extremely, extremely important to understand what the Anthropocene is. And it's a scientific concept which Earth system scientists, uh, I was going to say they developed, but in fact they, uh, they didn't. It kind of um, exploded onto the scene of Earth system thinking in the year 2000 when Paul Crutzen, Nobel Prize winning atmospheric chemist, was at a meeting, a workshop in Mexico of uh, Earth system scientists, and they were talking about state of the world and its evolution and where we're at and where we're going and so on. And they kept talking about the Holocene, as Graham mentioned, the, la the, you know, the, the previous geological epoch, which lasted for 11,500 years, and that one was, was really a very, very unusual in the long geological record because the global temperature was, was very stable and, very, and the conditions were very clement, uh, very suitable for um, flourishing of life and of civilization. And they're talking about this and talking about the Holocene this and the Holocene that. And Paul Crutzen was sitting there and he said, stop it. So, yeah, we must stop talking. It's not the Holocene. It's the, it's, the, it's the Anthropocene. And the term really took off in the scientific community and subsequently spread into the social sciences and the, and the humanities. But it's extremely important to recognise, as I argue at length in, in, in my book, that it is, first and foremost, a scientific concept. It's about geology and Earth system science more broadly. And I, I, I often quote this defining uh, the Anthropocene. They say, um, it's defined by the fact that the human imprint on the global environment has now become so large and active that it rivals some of the great forces of nature in its impact on the functioning of the Earth system. Now, what this means is that the Anthropocene is not just a continuation, perhaps at an elevated level, of the impacts that humans have been having on the Earth system or on, on the Earth over the last centuries, even thousands of years. Something very radical has happened. There has been a rupture, a radical rupture in the functioning of the Earth system. So it's not about changing the landscapes. It's not about functioning of the Earth system as an entire totality and the functioning of it has been changed so much so that we have entered a new geological epoch. And so it's extremely important to recognise this is a rupture in the operation of the Earth itself in its 4.5 billion year history. We're now being told we have to add an extra epoch at the end of the geological time scale called the Anthropocene. may even be not an epoch but an era going up one more to the Anthropozoic uh, perhaps. And, uh, and that this represents a change in the way the Earth operates out of the Holocene. And so the Earth has moved in the last 
decades, uh, largely as an impact of climate change, but not solely, um, and the impact of climate change on the totality of the Earth system, not just the atmosphere, it's the oceans, it's the biosphere, it's the lithosphere, it's the Earth crust itself which is changing. Um, and in a way, so the Earth as a totality is becoming much more unstable, much more uncontrollable, it's becoming angry, it's becoming violent. It is, in um, Lovelock's uh, term, seeking revenge. And so when Claire says um, that uh, in her argument about Buddhist economics, you don't need to fear nature, you need to enjoy nature, no. We need to fear nature because nature has changed. Nature is no longer the stable, clement, enjoyable, um, natural environment that humans have enjoyed for 10 or 11,000 years. And that's why I say the greatest tragedy is the absence of a sense of tragedy. Claire. <laughs> people, people in, your, people in your, your home state will be fearing nature right now as the biggest um, cyclone ever to exist in the Atlantic barrels down on... On, on Florida, right. should yeah, we well, be fearing nature? Um, no. One should understand that we have irrevocably changed the way the climate systems work, and that's absolutely true. But you can't, therefore, just fear nature. You actually have to stop and say, you know what, we did this. And we've actually done an enormous amount of damage just over the last 50 years, although it's been going on longer than that. And we have to immediately stop. Even Pope Francis said it's a sin when you get in your car to drive a fossil fuel engine because you're killing and harming people and the species all around us. So we, we need to be resilient. We have to build resilient systems. We have to really recognize that we now have extreme weather. No matter what we do, we have extreme weather. But are we going to continue to heat the earth? And the answer is, well, of course, it will get hotter and hotter because we've already put CO2 in the air that takes a couple of hundred years to even start to dissipate. So we're in a situation where we need resilience, but mainly right now we need everyone to quit driving fossil fuel engines and to quit. And all of that's possible. We have the technology. We know how to do it. But we have to actually start doing it. We have to demand our governments to, we have to shut down coal mining and any use of coal, number one, it's the worst. But to, from a Buddhist economics viewpoint, we live with nature. Nature's part of us, we're part of nature. And we can still enjoy nature. Nature is there, and, but we have to honor nature. We have to. So we're talking about a transition now Charles, when you entered farming 40 years ago, you were thrown into the traditional, uh, the established idea of what agriculture was. But you made a transition over the course of many years. How did, how did you as an individual, spending probably more time in touch with the land than any of us have, how did you make the move? I'll just touch, I know uh, Clive is poking a stick here to stir things up, but um, <laughs> I agree with Claire. I think uh, it's not so much fear we should be wary of nature, but why we've now disengaged uh, with the earth systems and, and, are, and are destroying them is because we have become divorced from nature as a, 
as a modern society. And you see it increasingly in the next generations and especially this sort of digital electronic technology is doing that further and further. And it's um, not until we come back to that pre-mechanical industrial mind, the organic mind, where we identified as being an indivisible part of nature, that, that um, we can start turning this around. And that, that's a huge task. But if we start to spread fear, it's going to be counterproductive. To, to answer your question, um, my farming journey was um, uh, I ended up having to take over a farm at the age of 22 when my father had a heart attack. I left university. And so I sought the advice of the best people in the... And that was an industrial approach to, to farming. Uh, chemical and um, that the, the landscape was an inert thing that you could extract from rather than build and um, it was only because I was involved in some innovative genetic work that we had a group of clients who were what you'd say were early adopters and some of them were doing this new sort of regenerative farming whether it was holistic grazing or biological agriculture and that and also I guess I had a training in um, in holistic thinking and also was a naturalist from way early and I guess those were the seeds that made me eventually realise hang on this is not sustainable and I have to shift. But you, you would have had you would have had an army of of experts, scientists, uh, colleagues, encouraging you to to farm the way that they had farmed. The, the the noise must have been almost deafening that you just do things the way that they've always been done. So how did you? How, and I'm sure that other farmers would have had similar conversations than you have. But how come? You listen to them, you, you, you listen to an, another idea and, and embrace that. A good question. The, and the army is even bigger now because what's behind industrial agriculture are all the biggest multinationals in the world. From the Monsantos, and, and you've got to bear in mind it's the big food producers, the big retailers. It's all about getting, um, making profits instead of growing healthy food. And uh, so that's what we're up against. And um, if we're going to look at the Earth systems, it, it's um, what made me wake up was the fact that a key, a key player in uh, disturbing probably seven of those nine Earth systems is industrial agricultural practices. Uh, and I guess, I don't know, how do, how do, uh, one of the things I looked at in my thesis was what made farmers transformatively shift. And in about 60% of the cases, I looked at about 80 of these leading farmers of their mind. And I think I was a slow learner. I, I mean, I, I, I experienced the 83 drought. A lot of the farmers were triggered by that. It took me other shocks, but eventually I came. And I think it comes from the heart, eventually. That what, what kind of life shocks? Um, big drought, marriage breakdown, poisoned with chemicals, um, burnt in a bushfire, those sort of things right. that, if you like, opened the mind to... Mm -hmm. to just took them out of the... Um, the, right. Not the rut, but the existence. Of Sinclair are both sort of they're, they're, what they're talking about here. I think is 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 compassion, and clearly, like we we have compassion for each other as a as a as a human race generally. But it, if we don't have compassion for for the planet that sustains us, then um, then it, it, it doesn't really matter whether or not I. I really care and have compassion for Claire and Charles and Clive. Um, so compassion can get us so far, can it? Can it but but can compassion alone um, 
get us out of the problems that we're in? See, well, you see, this is where I think we, who care about the environment and are anxious about the destructiveness of humankind, have to change the way we're thinking because that, that's the kind of word I would have used, uh, you know, compassion towards nature and so on. But I actually no longer think that na na the natural world, the Earth system, is the kind of entity for which one feels compassion. I think we should feel respect for it, great, deep respect. Um, but also, I think we should be beyond wary, we should be fearful. To me, if you're, if you're not afraid, you're not listening to what the scientists are telling us. Now, there's this kind of shibboleth amongst environmentalists and others that, you know, we should realizing uh, and so on. And, and I, I respond to that in two ways. Well, can't we treat people as adults and tell the full truth? I mean, because the full truth is scary. I mean, that's just how it is. So are we going to say, well, let's not tell people everything because they'll become too scared and then they'll either, you know, not do anything or they'll just decide to party until the, because there are no tomorrows. And I say, no, we need to be adults. We need to face up to this in its, in its full threat and the full uh, potential fury of nature and uh, because nature, the Earth system, um, has changed. And, uh, and so the view that which is very common, that, oh, we mustn't uh, yeah, be too fear, spread too much fear. Um, you know, I say, well, why is that? On what basis do people believe that? I think it's pop psychology. If you actually look at the evidence, when something really is scary, people ought to feel an adequate level of fear associated with it, rather than us telling stories about, oh, we can build a beautiful new green future, everything will be all right. Well, it won't be all right. That's a lie. Um, but if, if more people do sort of really embrace the magnitude of the problem, then, of course, it's natural for us to feel threatened, for us to get depressed for a while or, yeah. or kind of permanently. Yeah. I mean, can you, can you, can you, can, can any of you plot a route through that? It, where instead of being sort of like rabbits caught in the headlights, we become like, rabbits that uh, hijack the car, get behind the wheel and become responsible drivers. Yeah, um, I think what I'm writing about is a pen of hope. There's some large macro solutions out there. Um, we, we know that if we get healthy soils, healthy macro whole earth, that we can pull a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. I'll give an example. In, the scientists had a look at, uh, in 2010-11 was a very wet year across much of the um, centre of Australia. And the amount of carbon through healthy vegetation growth that went into the soil uh, was enough to pull about 25% of that year's global carbon emissions. The downside was the next year was a dry year and a lot of it went back up, but that was because the country was mismanaged and overgrazed by ferals and that sort of thing. But it's climate we're talking about with these earth systems, it's, it's uh, the water cycle and uh, land clearing and, you know, nutrients and stuff. So i uh, still sort of semi-disagreeing with Clive. I think it's quite right. We somehow have to break through to get people to realise that this is uh, the most frightening moment in, in the entire history of humanity. But we have to spell hope and, uh, and the solutions are out there and uh, 
And the other thing also, as a landscape manager, as I'm seeing regeneration occur and I'm interacting with the birds and insects and complexity, I feel a great love as I see the results coming. And, uh, and I think um, um, we have to have those sort of positive, uh, you know, uh, Christian, Buddhist, whatever um, you want to talk about, but that a love for the earth um, and not just be paralysed by fear. And, and especially with, I've got, you know, grandchildren now, it's really important not to um, get them fearful of what's coming or they'll just close off further, I think. So, Claire, how, how do we not be paralysed by fear? Um, clearly, my, my bad jokes aren't going to work. So. <laughs> it, it, it is true that we're asking people to change their daily habits. But we can do that in many different ways. I'm in California, and we've, we're moving to 100% clean energy, and we're restructuring cities so that people are not in their cars all the time, but their, their mobility is without fossil fuel. We're doing a lot of things in California that give me hard to do, and they don't cost that much. And in fact, the, the dividend is much healthier people with cleaner air and more exercise and just living mindfully. So we know from looking at California that and in many other places, but I'm, I'm actually quite proud of California. I spent a lot of time in Sacramento lobbying for certain bills because you do have to stand up to the fossil fuel industry. They fight back horribly. They're, they're mean, nasty, they lie, they steal, they do anything they can to get it out of the ground. When we say, excuse me, you've got to keep 80% of the coal in the ground and you have to keep over 50% of gas in the ground and you just can't take it out of the ground. And they then just spin lies like crazy and they put a lot of money into elections. And this also goes on in Australia, I know. So one of the things you have to do is get involved with what's going on legally, with, with legislation, because governments have to structure markets to stop fossil fuel being the way that we live. And we can. And, and in my book, I give lots of examples about how that's being done. But we also have to take some responsibility ourselves. And we've got to quit driving gas-guzzling cars. And we have to eat less meat and really respect regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture. It's a critical part just as you heard from Charles. But we can do these things, but it is going to require that each and every single one of us lives differently. And we can, because while we're actually consuming more mindfully and more naturally, we've got to send the resources to the developing world so that they have enough, a higher standard of living, they reduce their population growth, and they move with clean energy. They can't develop with fossil fuel energy the way we did. They want to but they need our help not to. You're listening to Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial, and all that stuff in between. One of the, one of the measures that, that, um, of something um, that we often hear about is, is the importance of, of GDP. Um, it's one of these, it's kind of, we, we learn about it at school, it's a thing, it's important, when it goes up it's good, when it goes down it's bad. Um, the, there was a, a little bit in your book, uh, quite startling, you, you know in, in 2005 uh, that killed uh, about 1,800 people. Um, uh, in, in the weeks and months after Katrina, GDP went now, that seems sort of perverse to me, 
perverse in the way that GDP is used as some measure of things going well or things going badly. So if we don't have GDP as a measure, uh, then what, what else do we need? What do we, what, what, what do we replace it with? What do we give those finance journalists and those politicians? Um, what's, what's the measure that we give them instead? There, there are actually lots of ways you can do it, and, and um, Clive has actually measured an alternative way for Australia. And in my book, I sort of take you through the three major ways and with the benefits and the cost of each one. There's no perfect way to do it. Anything's better than looking at the GDP. Anything where you bring in inequality or how you distribute resources and where you especially bring in what you're doing to the environment. Um, so we know how to move ahead if, if we finally got it together to do it as a, as a nation or a state even. But the problem, there's a major problem that we really have to keep in the forefront of anything that we want to do in measuring economic performance, and that is the whole idea of sustainability. So economists love the idea of weak sustainability, and that means, oh, you want to, you know, take down eco ecosystems of forest, no problem. We can just cut down all those trees because over here we'll be doing something else. Um, and that's called weak sustainability, this idea of trade-offs. And they love it because they need that to do their simulations of climate change. So all these simulations that you hear and read about that are very important to what people think might happen, they're based upon trade-offs. So you, you really have to disregard the answers. Um, and that's one of the reasons they aren't getting the right answers. So you have to go to the whole idea of strong sustainability where the ecosystems that we are disturbing really have to be protected. You can't push them past the boundary points as we're doing and as Clive has talked about. You really have to say, okay, there's no trade-offs here. We really have to protect the environment and the ecosystems. And then there's actually no right measurement other than red flags saying, oh, just a minute, the economic performance is negative, completely infinitely negative just because we're approaching a boundary point for the environment. Um, because once you bring in environmental degradation, which really brings down what you've produced in the marketplace and the value, you really have to push economists to say, just a minute, what are you going to do about what we're handing off to the next generation? What are you going to do about what we've already done in, ex in changing the climate to be extreme? So there, there are lots of possibilities, but there's no silver bullet. And so in my book, I say, you know, we should be having a much better measure than GDP, but there's no one adequate measure. We really do have to care about what what the tipping points are. Clive, I, I was having a conversation with a climate scientist, um, and, um, and the, the, the scientist was expressing privately to me that, that a big problem in that um, we have, they call it that we've perturbed the system to such a high greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, a rate that's completely unprecedented. Um, that when, when modelers like to kind of go back and, and check that their models work on, on the past uh, and then they reframe it into the future and they do the same with economic modelling too. But it seems that this, this scientist will explain to me that it's kind of broken already because 
we are we are now in a in a period where we've changed the system so quickly and so rapidly and so fundamentally that the tools for measuring it are also now becoming broken. Um, we do need new ideas, don't we, Clive? We do need new ideas, but you know, ideas don't exist in a vacuum. And there are actually lots of people who for many years have been writing books, including myself, about alternative ways of managing things and wouldn't be wonderful if we had the world governed by this. But what we're facing is an extraordinarily powerful, resilient force to keep the current system intact and going. And, um, you know, when um, I was very interested uh, uh, looking at uh, Claire's book to, to go back to the time when uh, we, at the Australian Institute, we built this alternative to GDP, the Genuine Progress Indicator, where you take account of environmental degradation, of inequality, and um, various other factors, social factors. Um, and, and what the GPI, the index, uh, showed that whilst uh, uh, GDP continued to go up, um, uh, a, a better measure of social well-being was going down. And this is consistent with other various other measures of social well-being. Again, I was just looking in, in happiness. You know how much people laud the wonderful achievement of the Chinese government in lifting 600 million people out of poverty, which is a great thing, definitely. Definitely don't want to uh, say that isn't. But actually, uh, all measures of happiness within China have gone down. So, um, the, so I just want to sort of stress the extraordinary resilience and power of the system. And so, for example, you know, after 9-11, with this terrible catastrophe in the United States, deep psychological shock to the system, uh, a day after, George W. Bush said, well, you know, we Americans must prove that we're going to go on as normal, and so I want everybody to go out and shop. Uh, and then... <laughs> And then with the North Korea crisis, it bothers me a great deal. You know, there's kind of Armageddon looming and they sort of deal with the issue and they say, now, we'll go to the stock market. How's the stock market reacting to the possibility of the end of the world? And this huge em em uh, emphasis they put on what the stock market thinks about uh, how this will affect, you know, shareholder value. And so if you watch the way the system functions, it's so deeply ingrained. I think it really is true that the uh, current capitalist system we now have would sooner see its own survival for an extra few decades, even if that means destruction of the Earth system as a whole. So we have the emphasis in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Charles, um, at the same time as, as we've got these, this Anthropocene, this huge rupture in our Earth systems, we also have a lot more people uh, that we need to feed and, and clothe. Um, no doubt you've had critics who will say, you just can't, it, it can't work, we, we just need, we need some more chemicals, we need more fertiliser, we need more land, um, and uh, all this regenerative stuff is, is, is fly-by-night. Um, no, actually, there's not really a choice, is there? There is. Um, I just have to say, I feel like a piggy in the middle with two economists either side of me. <laughs> um, and I think from a farmer's 
point of view, what they've been saying is that what modern e economics does is what's called discounting the externalities, which is that the really important stuff like ecological function and equity and well-being isn't in the equation. And um, I think what I'm arguing for is an inversion, and I'll come to your question. But that's why I deliberately use the word regenerative, because um, if you look at the Latin roots of the word sustain and regenerate, um, sustain to me means marking time, holding, holding firm. Regenerate means going forward, and it also has a strong moral connotation with it. So, um, yeah, what you're saying is it's exactly what we're hearing from the big end of town, that we need the chemicals and stuff. If you look at what's going on in the global food supply, 60% um, of the world's food is produced on um, small and peasant farmers uh, on less than 50 hectares. And another 30 to 40% is wasted in the industrial system getting there. So it's an absolute lie which they, uh, they put around that we need them to produce more food. We, we're producing plenty of food at the moment and, and we'll do so into the future. It's how we do it is, is the key question and uh, that's really what I'm, I'm on about, that um, there are better ways, broad acre as well as small, uh, and there's a, a, it's a wonderful, uh, some of you may not be aware, but because of the inequity, et cetera, the, um, there's now a, a movement globally called La Via Campesina of 500 million peasants banding together to make sure that they're not rolled over by. A really big issue here is that um, through healthy soils and healthy food, et cetera, healthy water, we address one of the escalating costs in society, which is ill health, obesity, and all the other modern diseases, many of which are due to what industrial agriculture and its processing distribution is doing to our food. So there's an economic win-win there too. Could I, could I, yeah, do you yeah, mind please. if I, I ask Charlie a question? Because yeah. reading his book, which is truly fascinating uh, and, you know, and very moving actually in, in, in many uh, passages, but one of the things that really struck me was your discussion of uh, glyphosate. Now, I heard, I, I visited um, someone in northern New South Wales many years ago, 15 years ago, who was campaigning against glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. And um, I had been persuaded by what turns out to be PR propaganda that glyphosate, you know, using your garden side spray on the weeds, it was fine, it broke down, it disappeared quite quickly and, you, you know, you could use it safely. And when I heard these people talk about, no, it's really dangerous, I thought, oh, they're probably out on the fringe, you know, they're a bit fanatical. So I kept on using it. And I heard, more and more heard these stories and um, started to become worried about it and, and, and kind of stopped using it uh, a, a few years ago. Um, but reading your book, Charlie, I mean, it's kind of the it's kind of the story of of modern industrial agriculture, isn't it? The the kind of glyphosate story. Yeah, it is, and thanks, Clive. Uh, it's a really important issue. Um, glyphosate is the world's most widely used herbicide. It's linked to the GM foods, which mean they've genetically modified. You can spray them without killing them and kill the weeds at the same time. Most of the major industrial cropping in the world, it's the weed killer. But uh, in the last 10 years, for a long while, I started to research glyphosate. Uh, the big end of town would make sure you lost university tenure and you couldn't proceed. But in the last 10 years, there's more and more evidence coming out. And, and I recently, um, behind this book, uh, reviewed review, major review papers on medical and medical science. 
who are now stating it's probably, and, and if you think back to Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, we're probably talking about the most dangerous chemical uh, we've ever seen. And the alarming news is it's getting into, into human food, into, into the major staples, all the grains and, all, and um, all the other products where it's used, which in, in industrial farming is the majority. And without going on, but it's, um, it's incredibly important impact that it's disturbing our gut biome, which is our whole immune system. And um, some of the leading scientists who summarise all these papers are saying it's probably one of the major factor, factors in most of the modern diseases, from obesity, all the allergies and all that sort of thing. And if just quickly, if you have a look at some of the graphs on when uh, this sort of industrial farming came in, which was in the 90s, the, if you look at the curve going like that of the use of glyphosate, and you look at the curve on the, uh, just alone, the immune diseases, uh, ADDHs, the asthmas, ADHDs rather, the asthmas, the allergies and all that, it's almost a 95% correlation between the two curves. So this evidence is mounting. It's obviously being fought viciously. I, I personally believe that this is another tobacco, um, both in the politics that's being played and, and the, the, the big end of town in tobacco employed a whole bunch of PR companies and think tanks to sow doubt. And there's books written on this. Those same companies that did the sowing of the doubt are being employed by um, big carbon and big chemical because they know they've got to sow doubt. But I think the health impacts and the political and legal impacts could be monumental. Segway from that to Buddhist economics. Well, <laughs> um, well, here's how I think we might do it. So we've identified there that there are uh, there are established ways of doing things, uh, and in agriculture there's an established way of doing things. In economics there's an established way of doing things. So um, uh, how do we how do we break the establishment of doing things? Uh, while, while still being caring, compassionate, and also getting behind the, the wheel of the the wheel of the vehicle and driving it in the right direction in an aggressive way that appeals to politicians and leaders. I, I think you really have to see it as a political problem, as we've mentioned. It's like we cannot have in industrial agriculture telling us what our agricultural policies are because it's making us unhealthy, the costs are enormous, the benefits are negative. So we have to go to people like Charles and the sustainable agricultural movement. They have so much that they can teach us. We cannot let Monsantos give us our agricultural policy. But that's a political movement that we have to demand that we take the scientists as our basis, not not the chemical industry. And that's also true for the fossil fuel industry. They cannot be the basis for giving us our energy policy. The coal industry cannot explain to us why we need coal. Because anybody with any sense and any, any knowledge of economics can tell you any investment or use of coal is a huge negative factor on people's health and on the future generations. And so you also can't let Big Pharma be in charge of healthcare. We, we have to say, look, we know what works, and we do. We can look at children and, and to redistribute income. We know what works in terms of getting rid of fossil fuels in the economy. 
we know what works actually in reducing starvation around the world, giving women the right to vote. We, we know economics is integrate all of that into one system that we can actually know how to do. We just have to politically demand that we do it, and then we also need to give our part when we live but, mindfully. But Claire, what, is, what does Buddhism have to say about political power? Oh, the Dalai Lama is very clear that you absolutely have to stand up to any power that's causing harm. Because from a Buddhist viewpoint, it's sort of interesting. You're actually helping people when you stop harm. Because they're, they're doing things that cause them bad karma now and in the future. It makes them very unhappy. So I don't go into this in my book a whole lot, but the Dalai Lama is very clear. Stop making, stopping harm is a big plus to make everybody happier, including the people that you're stopping. You're listening to Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial, and all that stuff in between. Before we go to questions, I just very quickly want to get back to, to, to Clive. Um, so um, we've talked about the politics, we've talked about the systems are broken, um, ev- everything's rosy in the garden. Um, uh, what, ne- what, what needs to happen? What, where's, where's the civil rights movement moment for, for, for the planet? Well, you know, the climate activism has been years and it has had some, you know, really remarkable successes. Sometimes it's very hard to see that. But Claire was talking about California going uh, uh, zero, uh, zero carbon electricity. Uh, I live in the ACT. By 2020, our electricity will be zero carbon. And there's a big push, not only for public transport, for electric vehicles uh, and people are replacing gas heating and so on and uh, with uh, electricity. So um, there are jurisdictions where great uh, progress uh, has been made and this is due to climate activism, you know. I mean, um, it, it shouldn't be attributed to anything else. It's the climate activists that are doing it. It actually makes me sick when I read in the, you know, the, the Australian, of course, uh, the other day, one of their stable of right-wing commentators, you know, attacking the, envi- the environmental left for this impasse in energy policy in Australia. I mean, for God's sake, you know. Talk about blaming, uh, blaming the victims or, or, you know, here are people who have been campaigning for years, let's change our energy economy, uh, being resisted by denialists and right-wing ideologues in the Conservative parties at every point, and now you have those same right-wing ideologues blaming the environmentalists for getting us into this mess. You know, let us build more coal-fired power plants and we'll fix the energy problem. Yeah, our Deputy Prime Minister uh, gave a speech a couple of days ago and where he, he talked about green peril. Green peril. So I, 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 I sent him some pictures of green peril, one of which was yeah. the Black Saturday bushfires. That's pretty green yeah. peril. Yeah. Uh, this Cyclone Irma, that's, that's yeah. more green. But there's green peril everywhere. Um, uh, we've got about seven or eight minutes for for questions, we don't have a microphone, so um, uh, we need a bit of voice projection. I don't want statements. I'd really like questions, nice and short and sweet. Direct them to a, a panelist, if I may. Yeah, you, that lady in the centre. Charles, what else can we? What can we do as individuals in our daily life to um, to change the dynamics of um, agriculture? Uh, for recording purposes, the question is, what can we do in our individual lives to change the dynamics? 
I, I think um, watching and being involved uh, with colleagues in the urban food movement, uh, fair food, um, and I've got a daughter work, working in the field in, in uh, Melbourne uh, with both refugees and, and the new urban food movement. I think consumer power, it's part of that underground insurgency, buying and, well, first of all, boycotting the over-processed foods and the, some of the industrial foods. Um, and I know there's an equity issue here because um, those that are most disadvantaged, it's not that easy. But both either in your purchasing power or how about we get back to growing our own veggies or in community urban gardens and stuff. I think that sort of... If you want to undermine this, is, is a powerful way of doing it. And at the, at the same time, you'll be improving your own personal health. Um, question lady up there. So I think the question might be, how do we get more active in politics? I think it's not that hard. What you do is you join a group that you have, you know, you have friends, they share values. I work a lot with the Sierra Club and 350.org, for example. But you decide what's your special talent, what do you really like to do? Because you, you don't have to do everything. You just have to join a group and get active because together there are lots of us and people in this room are really mindful, smart, educated, energetic and if we all went out and started working with the group, the, the ability to change the political situation we found in California is, 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 was enormous and same in New York. So, and don't worry, sometimes like we had to forget the national government in the US but the states are now taking over which is a huge step forward. Uh, the, yeah, the lady over there, yep. So, in the US, there was some talk about educated people actually voting for Trump because they wanted to accelerate the implosion of a very broken system. And when it comes to climate change, because it's too little, too late, it's screwed. It's too late. What about, what are your thoughts about a very small, agitating group who are saying, you do the best by yourself, for your conscience, but we need to let the system implode and start going. Uh, just to repeat the question, uh, is, it, is it okay if we let the system implode so that we can kind of start afresh? Like a napalm approach, I suppose. Yeah, I actually don't think there's any data that, I've heard that rumor, but all the data shows that that was not actually what was going on. What was going on was mis people being misled and miseducated. So it's really important to keep education and climate science and agricultural knowledge way out there and way out front. And we can work on that and we can push that um, ourselves. But no, we, we can't. Clive, I'll tell you, you can't just let the system break. It's like, it's irreparable. We, we have to do what we can now to heal the earth because, because we have so much carbon in the air already. Um, time for one I, more I, question. Just, uh, let me just, could I that. just comment very briefly yeah, on, please. on that ground? Because I actually want to acknowledge the, the, um, the sentiment and the analysis that lies behind that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm active in my personal life and, and my kind of political life have been for years. But I do, you know, I, th I think what your question um, really uh, alerts us to is to say, um, is, to, is to blow away the veil of wishful thinking and, and to recognise that the system is on the trajectory to some kind of collapse. And I think we need to um, 
get used to that idea and certainly not enhance it, encourage it, accelerate it. That would be morally indefensible. Mm. Uh, but intellectually, to face up to that possibility, possibility I, I think it's important for all of us to do that. Uh, one more short and sweet question there, Gent, with the... Clive Hamilton encouraged us to ask adult questions. It struck me during your explanation of this new word, the source of the word, Yeah. you said that it was an invented term for geology, but it is not part of geology. You did, you did put a lot of emphasis on um, uh, sorry I'll get to my question yeah. would you be a credible advocate if you say things like that well uh, the question is uh, the origin of the uh, term the Anthropocene I said it's geological and the questioner has challenged that and on that basis challenged my credibility as a commentator. Well, um, uh, in the years that followed uh, Paul Crutzen's uh, coining of the term and the huge influence, the uh, emphasis it received within the earth system science and the broader earth science sciences, the International Commission on Stratigraphy, uh, which is the global body that makes recommendations and decisions about the geological timescale um, commissioned a, a working group, the Anthropocene Working Group, to uh, write a report, to, uh, get, uh, putting together the evidence, uh, assessing whether uh, the commission should actually declare that the Anthropocene uh, is a new epoch in the geological stratigraphic history of the Earth. Now, we are now seeing a kind of um, arrow, and I must say very conservative discipline. I mean, the Commission on Stratigraphy takes a long time, quite rightly, to make a decision about changing the uh, geological timescale. But it is assessing this process, and my bet would be, uh, in all likelihood, in the next five or six years, the International Commission on Stratigraphy, geologists, will declare that, yes, the Anthropocene is a new geological epoch. So I'm sorry. Um, I don't accept the premise of your question. Okay. Well, so um, <laughs> on that epoch-defining <laughs> bombshell, that, that's it, folks. Um, remember, that our panel are going to be around... Uh, for book signings at the, uh, at the Knowledge Walks downstairs here at the State Library. Uh, but for a goodbye, um, uh, please join me in thanking Charles Massey, Clive Hamilton and Claire Brown. You're listening to Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial and all that stuff in between. So that was recorded as part of the 2017 Brisbane Writers' Festival presented by Uplit. Again, sorry about those little audio jumps. Unavoidable, really, but I hope you enjoyed it anyway. Thanks for listening to Positive Feedback, produced and funded by me, Graham Redfern. 
please share, like, subscribe, all that stuff. Leave comments on the podcast homepage at soundcloud.com forward slash positive feedback podcast or find the Facebook page, positive feedback podcast. Have a search on there. And thanks again for listening. See you next time.